This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is progression in life through decision-making. In the first half, Lynn A. Mickelson shares his address, Decisiveness in the Face of Uncertainty, the Basis of Progress. Then in the second half, Keith Vorkink speaks on real causes and real effects. When I received this assignment to speak here several months ago, my thoughts went back to the devotionals I attended while at BYU. My objective in speaking today is to say something that will be relevant, something that you will not just listen to, but that you will hearken to. How I envy you. What a marvelous time you live in and what a happy time this should be. I don't want to live my life over it. It has been full and wonderful. But from my perspective, BYU students have never had it better. When I was here as a student 50 years ago, I remember hearing from church leaders that we were the chosen generation, that we were among the spirits held back to come forth in this last dispensation. We were told that great responsibility would rest upon us to prepare the way for the coming of the Savior, that no one had ever faced the challenges we would, and that no one had ever been equipped to handle them as we were. I confess my feelings upon hearing this were mixed. There were days I believed what we were told, and other times I rejected it as hyperbole, words spoken with the intention to get us to behave better than the previous generation. <laughs> now that I am in a position to do the preaching, I admit to some hyperbole, but I say with conviction that the Lord meant what He said, that even before you were born, you with many others received your first lessons in the world of spirits and were prepared to come forth in the due time of the Lord to labor in His vineyard for the salvation of the souls of men. From the beginning of creation, our Father in heaven has singled out from among His children those He has referred to as chosen. We can be chosen by birthright, through the covenants we make, or both. Abel was chosen, for it was said of him that he hearkened unto the voice of the Lord. And the Lord had respect for his sacrifices. But because Cain wanted it his way, he was not counted among the chosen and rebelled against God. After Cain killed Abel, Adam and Eve prayed for a worthy son, and Seth was born after the image and likeness of Adam. Seth was called chosen, and his sacrifices were acceptable before the Lord. Being born after the image and likeness of Adam, he looked like him, but more importantly, he acted like him. He was chosen because of the way he chose to live. Throughout time, the Lord has chosen righteous servants to carry out his work. Noah pronounced Shem the chosen of his three sons, and in his patriarchal blessing, although he was not the eldest, he received all the promised blessings of the birthright. Through the lineage of Shem came Abraham. The Lord made a covenant with Abraham. I will multiply thee exceedingly. Thou shalt be a father of many nations. The covenant included the priesthood and great responsibility that through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. There is a bit of irony in being chosen. One might suppose that being chosen makes a person better than others. Yet the Lord has made it clear He is no respecter of persons. What does it mean, then, to be chosen? 
Peter spoke of a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. To those who are chosen, the Lord has always opened the heavens to that marvelous light. The promised light includes understanding the plan of salvation and participation in the covenants and blessings from God. It includes the blessings of the priesthood and the key of the knowledge of God and exaltation. That marvelous light comes through the Holy Ghost. Those who have not enjoyed that experience of light and knowledge through the Holy Ghost ridicule those who have because they cannot produce empirical evidence to substantiate their knowledge. Notwithstanding the disdain of the skeptics, we have that knowledge. And with that marvelous light, we have great responsibility. The Lord said, Of him unto whom much is given, much is required. And he who sins against the greater light shall receive the greater condemnation. The Savior promised his disciples that when he left, they would continue to learn from the Holy Ghost, who would teach them all things and bring all things to their remembrance whatsoever he had said unto them. The prophet Joseph Smith in explaining the Godhead, said the Holy Ghost is a personage of spirit so he can dwell in us. As he dwells in us, that marvelous light is increased and he works as the agent to cleanse us of our sins and confirm truth to our minds and hearts as we hear it or read it. It is through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost that we come to know the things of God. There is an interesting dichotomy between inspiration and agency. The Lord has made it clear. He will inspire. He will guide. He will prompt. He will teach. But he will not choose for us. Oliver Cowdery thought that getting inspiration and guidance would be easy. The Lord does not work that way. First, we must study it out in our minds. And then we must decide. It is with the exertion of studying out... That inspiration comes. It is through our earnest seeking and thinking that the Holy Ghost can speak to our minds. Part of that deliberation is formulating the right question in our minds. So we can then ponder and seek the answer to the question. When we have made a preliminary decision and settled on a solution or answer, we then take it before the Lord. He has promised us a confirmation of our decisions through a burning in our bosom if it be right, and a stupor of thought, if it be wrong. A stupor of thought affects each of us in different ways. It may come as a complete brain cramp when you can't remember anything. I remember some of those times here at BYU when I had not studied it adequately for an exam. You all know what I'm talking about. Of course, if the exam is multiple choice, you can always guess. But understand this, the important questions of life are essay questions, and you either know or you don't. In 1972, we had a large family in a very small home. We had seven of our nine children then under the age of 12 and only one bathroom. Our five girls shared a single bedroom. We had the opportunity to move to a much larger and nicer home that was also closer to my work. It seemed like a simple, uncomplicated decision. It meant a change in ward, stake, and school, but that didn't seem important in light of the advantages. 
I spent two frustrating months considering the move. I was learning about stupors of thought. I finally decided to take the problem to the Lord in a serious way. I determined I wouldn't eat until I made a clear decision. For three long days, the same frustrating ideas went through my mind. Finally, I asked the right question, not about money and convenience, but about family and church. The next morning in the shower, I knew we should stay where we were and made the decision. The calm peace that passeth all understanding came over me, and I knew it was right. I didn't know why. I just knew. I learned two months later when I was called to be the stake president. The Lord, of course, knew all along. I just had to ask the right question. In addition to the blessings of the Holy Ghost, our Father in Heaven has provided another marvelous resource to guide us in our choices. When Elohim confronted Lucifer in the Garden of Eden, he said to him, I will put enmity between thee and the seed of the woman. We feel this enemy toward Satan through the light of Christ. The light of Christ plants within our hearts a natural hostility toward Satan and his followers who have set about to frustrate the plan of God. It is given to every man, and it is what makes sin repulsive to the honest in heart. The goodness, the innocence and faith, the disgust at the sight of sin and the honesty of a little child is the personification of that enmity. If we follow the light of Christ, it becomes one of the most precious possessions that we hold. However, if we persist in rejecting his inviting and enticing, we can lose that help, for the Spirit will not always strive with man. The light of Christ gives us the foundation in choosing between good and evil. The Holy Ghost is our teacher. Together they will guide us toward the light, but the choice is ours with no compulsion. The purpose of our existence is to develop the character and capacity to make right decisions. It is based on the eternal principle of agency that began in our premortal existence. I believe it was just as difficult to make right decisions then as it is now. There was as much uncertainty then as we face now. We had to be decisive to make up our minds. We had to choose right in the war in heaven. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Explaining the meaning and purpose of agency, Lehi told Jacob that if there were not opposition in all things, it would destroy the wisdom of God and his eternal purposes. A life without opposition would be a life without agency. And without agency, there could be no progression. But because of agency, there can be progression. Lehi continues, Men are free according to the flesh. They are free to choose liberty and eternal life through the atonement of Christ or captivity and death according to the power of the devil. God gave man agency that he could act for himself, which he could not do if he were not tempted by one or the other. Agency is the essence of eternal life. For eternal life or God's life cannot be if there is no agency. Or in other words, 
If we can make our agency eternal through right choices, then through the grace of Christ we will have eternal life. Man is free to choose between eternal life, which is an eternal continuation of agency, or the right to choose, or eternal death, wherein we can no longer choose. One choice perpetuates agency. The other terminates it. When we make wrong choices, the door of opportunity closes behind us. If we continue in error, the doors keep closing until the night of darkness comes when agency is lost and no labor can be performed. The Lord said through Abraham, We will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. I have no doubt that you are among the noble and great ones Abraham saw. But that is not a free pass. You will have to prove yourselves. The choices we make always determine the outcome or consequence. The Lord has given us commandments to guide us. That seems simple enough. The rub is to make the right decisions. That will require the application of faith. To even know there is a God requires faith. Faith is the basis of our obedience to God. It follows then that faith is an important part of making right decisions. With each decision, we exercise our faith. That expression, exercise faith, has always intrigued me. I know what exercise means in a physical sense. Physical exertion causes us to sweat. But exercise of the mind and will, the exercise of the spirit, is harder to understand. With greater uncertainty, greater faith is required. Perhaps every decision to be consistent with God's plan requires an element of faith. The real exercise of our faith and spirit comes when we make decisions out of our comfort zone. At this time in your lives, you are weighed down with decisions outside of your comfort zone. If you are single, you have a marriage decision ahead of you. If you're married, you have homes to buy and children to bring into the world. You wonder, how will I support my family? These decisions you face today will require the exercise of faith. We exercise our faith by stepping into the darkness. If we step with faith, surely the light will follow. The courage to take that step is based on the evidence and substance we have added to our faith by earlier stretching. If you have practiced that procedure, you will be decisive and boldly step into the darkness, knowing the light will follow. When our faith is matured, making the right decision in spiritual things is automatic. It requires little effort. For when you are standing in the light, the decision is clear. The choice has already been made. Moses was caught up into an exceedingly high mountain where he was able to see all of creation from the beginning to the end. When he came down from his great vision, Satan came tempting him. He appeared as an angel of light, claiming to be the only begotten. He can do that, you know. But Moses was not deceived, for he said, The Spirit of the Lord hath not altogether withdrawn from me. Therefore, I can judge between thee and God. When we have the Spirit of the Lord with us, the decisions are easier. 
For with that light, the difference can be as clear as the day from the darkest night. We live in an information age. With a keystroke or two, you can access information that when I was here would have taken hours of research in the library. These are also very uncertain times, in part because of that flood of information and of contradictory information. What is truth? What is propaganda? What is right? What is wrong? Isaiah saw this day and declared, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. During the American Revolution, Thomas Paine declared, These are the times that try men's souls. He spoke of summer soldiers and sunshine patriots who chose to hide and watch, to wait and see. We have our choice today. This is not a time to wait and see. This is a time of decision. Unfortunately, many of us go through life knowing the things we should do, but failing to make the decisions that allow us to act. We put off important decisions until they require a quick or an impulsive answer. Early in life, our choices and decisions were guided by our parents, teachers, or church and political leaders. My father died 13 years ago. I miss him. I miss him because there was great certainty in his counsel. It is always comfortable to have someone validate your decisions. But the most important thing to learn is to make right decisions yourself. Following the gospel plan trains us in making decisions. Through the gospel, we receive God's commandments and we choose to obey or disobey. As we make the right spiritual choices, our capacity to make right decisions increases in every facet of life. You are here at school to learn how to make right decisions from the experience of others. Going to school is for your temporal life, like studying the scriptures is for your spiritual life. In training missionaries, I counsel them to make up their minds about what they intend to do when they grow up. And I teach them that this decision will help them be better missionaries. In Mexico, one of the elders, obviously a very bright young man, asked, You mean you want me to take time out of my missionary service to make that decision? I asked him, How much time do you need? He replied, At least a week of fasting and prayer so I can know the will of the Lord in that important choice in my life. My answer surprised him, as it may surprise some of you. I said, Elder, I don't think your career matters to the Lord. As long as you keep the commandments and prepare to serve Him, your career is your decision. I don't mean to imply we should not confirm that kind of decision with the Lord, but I believe He expects us to go through the process of making the decision first. Elder Bruce R. McConkie many years ago told a group here at BYU about meeting the girl he would later marry. When I saw Amelia, he said, I knew what I wanted. I didn't have to ask the Lord. (laughs) Then in reflection, he said, I guess I could have confirmed that with the Lord, but it was clear to me. Well, becoming decisive is part of our spiritual growing up. This growing up requires constant decision making. We must learn to be decisive. Because indecision is no choice at all. If we fail to choose, we fail to act. 
with no action, the second law of thermodynamics takes over. Now that law, simply stated, is that without power or energy applied, things tend to deteriorate. The easiest path is always followed unless we choose otherwise. The Lord expressed it this way, Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Wide is the gate, broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. This is a life or death issue. To overcome this entropy requires power. That power is generated by faith as we follow the narrow way. There are two kinds of decisions we make in our lives. The critical decisions determine our standing before our eternal Father. These decisions have to do with eternal truth, and the Holy Ghost can confirm the rightness of our choices. But there are many other decisions that don't make a difference in our standing before the Lord. They are the schoolmasters that help us learn and gain experience. They are the non-critical decisions like, what color shirt should I wear today? (laughs) For me, that's easy. With my assignment, it's always white. (laughs) And speaking of white shirts, one of the brethren told me this experience. He said his wife had given him a colored shirt, a bright yellow shirt, as a present. He knew he had to wear that to make her happy. So one day, knowing that he was going to the temple, he thought, I'll wear it as I leave home. Then I'll change into my white shirt at the temple. As he stepped into the elevator at the church office building, one of the senior brethren saw him and said, Nice shirt. (laughs) Well, we should make those kinds of decisions. I've made the decision to wear a white shirt always, so that doesn't happen to me. To make those decisions and learn from them and move on. A wrong decision in the non-critical department may embarrass us or cause some other discomfort, but it will not affect our standing before the Lord. The critical decisions have to do directly with the gospel, the plan that the Father has given us to guide us back to His presence. Those decisions are eternal in consequences and require non-negotiable commitments. These are the I will never And I will always parameters that will accelerate our progress and build in a powerful protection when we are tempted to stray from the celestial path. I knew a young man who exemplified this. He overcame difficult physical obstacles in in order to fill his life's dream to serve a mission. At his farewell, his father said, My son will not make many decisions on his mission. I wondered where he was going with that statement. Then he said, because he only makes a decision once. We all need to be like that with the non-negotiables. These non-negotiable commitments give us greater access to the Holy Ghost to build and strengthen testimony. A testimony of the gospel goes beyond believing to a profound certainty that comes through personal spiritual witness. As Latter-day Saints, we are surrounded by the truth, by the truth and the testimonies of others. In that insulated environment, we run the risk of depending on others for our certainty. We can find ourselves caught in what I call the Thomas Paradox. 
Thomas had spent three years with the Savior. Yet when Jesus told his apostles he was leaving and was going to prepare a place for them, Thomas said, We don't know where you're going. We don't know how to get there. Contrast Thomas's indecisiveness with the testimony of Peter when the Savior asked him, Who do you say that I am? And Peter declared, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then the Savior confirmed Peter's source of that knowledge that flesh and blood had not revealed that to him, but the Father which is in heaven. If we will be decisive in our desire for personal witness, we can know, just as Peter knew. In San Antonio, Texas, I met a man who had married a faithful Latter-day Saint girl. He was not a member of the church, so they made an agreement that they would not discuss or argue about religion. His wife was true to her commitment, but shortly after they were married, the missionaries came calling. He remained true to his commitment and didn't argue or complain, and the missionaries just kept coming. He went through so many sets of missionaries, he lost count. Three years went by, but he still remained indifferent to the gospel. He was a good man. He was just not willing to expend the faith necessary to believe. One evening he came home from work and his wife said, The missionaries are coming tonight. He thought to himself, Oh, no, not again. Haven't I been through this enough already? But that night was different. There was an older stake missionary with the elders, and as they began the lesson, he said to this man, It's time you joined the church. You need to make the decision now. And he heard himself saying, I know you're right. It is time. As he said those words, he felt a powerful confirmation of the spirit that flooded over him, and he knew it was true. He said to me, I really didn't know until that moment. But then I knew with a confirmation that I could not deny. His one step of faith into darkness opened the door to the confirming spirit. I rejoice in the principle of agency. I am grateful for opposition that helps us grow. So what happens when we make wrong choices? With everyday mistakes and everyday temporal decisions, opportunities are lost. There may be physical or mental discomfort, but these consequences can be overcome and the experience gained is valuable in our development. However, <clears throat> if we make wrong choices in keeping the commandments, the consequences are far more serious. You've heard of the gates of hell. When we disobey the commandments of God, we suffer spiritual death. We cannot return to His presence without help. There is a trap used to catch pigeons. It is a wire cage with a hinged gate that only swings to the inside. As the pigeon eats the feed on the perch, he focuses his appetites on the food and blissfully walks through the gate, finding himself trapped. The gate will not swing out. The gates of hell are like that. If we follow our carnal appetites and commit sin, in effect, we pass through that gate. and We are powerless to open it. But the Master can and will if we repent. How I love our Savior. I know He vicariously suffered spiritual death for us. If we will leave behind the mistakes we have made and follow Him,
we can become the new creature through him. I know that is what he wants. And above all, that is what I want. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is progression in life through decision-making. We've just heard from Lynn A. Mickelson. After the break, we'll return with Keith Vorkink for Real Causes and Real Effects. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is progression in life through decision-making. Next is Keith Vorkink, Associate Dean in the Marriott School of Management at the time of this address, titled Real Causes and Real Effects. As I was preparing for my talk, I was reminded of a story I once heard at a state conference session a number of years ago. The story begins with a rancher out on his ranch one morning performing chores when he sees a shiny pickup truck drive onto his ranch and park. Out of the truck steps a man in a uniform who walks up to the rancher and states, I'm here to inspect your ranch for any illegally grown drugs. The rancher responds, fine, but do not go into that field over there, pointing to a beautiful field to the east. The officer replies, Mister, I don't think you understand me. I'm here to inspect your ranch, and I have the authority of the federal government behind me. Reaching into his pocket, he pulls out some form of a badge and proudly displays the badge to the rancher. See this badge, old man? This badge means I'm allowed to go on any land pointing across the farmer's ranch. Have I made myself clear? The rancher apologizes, nods, and goes about his chores. A short while later, the old rancher hears someone screaming and looks up and sees the officer running, being chased by a large bull in the field the rancher had told the officer not to enter. With every step the officer takes, the bull takes two. With this shrinking distance between the charging bull and the frantic officer, the rancher steps onto the fence enclosing the field and yells, Your badge! Show him your badge! On college campuses everywhere, including this one, we do a fair amount of badge showing, and for good reason. Our faculty have gone to top graduate schools and trained with many of the best scholars in their disciplines, which, among other benefits, help prepare them to stand at the front of your classrooms and speak with expertise and authority. Unfortunately, I have no badge to pull from my pocket demonstrating my credentials to speak today. I am grateful for the vote of confidence from President Worthen and Vice President Richardson in extending this invitation. I am also grateful to each of you for coming to be a part of today's devotional. It is not lost on me that you have a choice to attend or not. To this end, I hope and pray for the presence of the Spirit that we may be edified as a result. I am grateful for my wife Marcy and my children, all of whom are here except for our oldest daughter Sarah, who is serving a mission in South Carolina and just happens to return from her mission next week. We're excited in our household. I'm grateful for my mother and for other family members, dear friends, and colleagues who are here as well today. I had the good fortune of growing up in the state of Alaska, 
it was a fantastic place to be raised. As an example of this, each year our scout troop would plan and carry out amazing high adventure camps. We would go backpacking, canoeing, and even whitewater rafting. For one such summer camp, we decided to raft a well-known section of the Gulcana River. We had a great time. Other than a lot of rain, which is summers in Alaska, we rafted through beautiful country. We caught seemingly endless numbers of fish. We saw abundant wildlife, including bald eagles and grizzly bear. On one of the final days of the trip, we came up against the signature whitewater challenge of the river, a section of rapids ending with a 7 to 10 foot waterfall. At this point, many rafters would actually take their rafts and their gear out of the river and portage around the falls to ensure against losing gear or harm. We decided, being bright, to carry our gear around the waterfall, but to enjoy the thrill of running the rafts through the rapids and over the falls. I went in a raft with my father, who happened to be one of our youth leaders. He was situated at the center of the raft, where he could use two large oars to steer. I sat near the front of the raft. I was given a paddle, but my primary role was to stay out of his way. I still remember smoothly navigating the rapids and with confidence and exhilaration approaching the waterfall. Everything was lined up perfectly. And much like you'd experience on a roller coaster, we shot down off the falls to the water below. But just after passing the falls, the raft paused a bit and started moving backwards. I didn't understand why, so I turned back to see my father, only to see him being engulfed in the falls, immediately knocking him out of the raft and into the river. Let me take a quick detour from the story and explain a little bit more about the current and flow of this waterfall. As water flowed over the falls, the force would carry it down to the river bottom, where it would rebound and cause the water to flow back up towards the surface, following a circular path. When the water would come back up to the surface, a wave was formed, and the force of this wave would actually push back upstream towards the falls. This wave, sometimes called a standing wave, was what our raft had hit and drove us back into the falls. Now back to the story. Here I was, alone in the raft. The force of the raft hitting the falls had turned it sideways. And you could guess that in that brief moment, I went from excitement to panic. But the ordeal was not over. Over the course of the next few minutes, which to me seemed to go on forever, uh, the raft, now sideways, would slowly float away from the falls downstream until it would hit the standing wave, reversing the raft's course back towards the falls. As the raft would approach the falls, the cascading water would hit the nearest side tube of the raft, and that force would cause the raft to begin to tip up towards the falls, as if it were to flip over upside down with me in the raft. However, each time, as the raft would approach the point of flipping over, it would stop, fall back flat, and then float out towards the standing wave, only to repeat the process all over again. This back and forth between the falls and the standing wave was repeated perhaps about seven to ten times. During all of this, my other youth leaders and fellow youth were standing on a bank of the river, perhaps just 15 feet away, shouting support and instructions to me. And even though they were that close, shouting as loud as they could, it seemed impossible at the time to hear exactly what they were saying. The noise of the waterfall, 
the number of different people who are all trying to shout at me at the same time, and probably most of all, the overwhelming intensity of the situation, all drowned out their words. I could not hear what they were saying. At one point, I came to the brilliant conclusion that what they were trying to tell me to do was to hold tight to the raft. So with all the trust and faith in their instructions, I did my best to increase my already death grip on the raft. Finally, after yet another flip of the raft into the falls, now the raft almost full of water fell down, this time floated over the standing wave instead of getting pushed back towards the falls, and moved into a calmer section of waters where I was immediately rescued by my leaders who pulled the raft to the side of the river. As a side note, my father was also rescued from the river about a third of a mile downstream. Later that day, we all gathered together and talked about what had happened. One of the young men's leaders, who happened to be standing closest to me on the bank and shouting more than the others, told our scout group of how proud he was that I had showed courage and followed the instructions that they were shouting to me to lean against the tipping raft. He said this was what saved the boat from flipping and me from being seriously injured or worse. As he talked to the group about my obedience and bravery, I began to convince myself that his story was exactly what had happened. (laughs) I had been brave. I had leaned against the tipping raft to keep it from flipping over. However, as time wore on, and more and more I thought about what had happened, I realized that this description was not entirely accurate. What had saved me from the waterfall was the raft filling up with water and becoming heavy enough to keep it from tipping and to carry it through the standing wave. And it had little to do with my following the instructions of my leaders. In fact, I hadn't followed their instructions because I hadn't heard them. The circumstances of that event made it difficult to figure out what had really caused my safe escape from the waterfall. I believe my experience on the raft that day and the difficulty of determining what caused my safe escape represents in some ways the challenges we face in determining the true causes of outcomes in our lives. We make many mistakes in determining causality. Each party involved in my rescue had come to an incorrect or incomplete conclusion about what had led to my successful escape. I'd like to address each. First, my young men's leaders. I am sure that they were fearful for my safety, and their intentions were to do everything that they could to save me, but they could not make it out to the raft so they could not feel and experience what was happening to me on the raft. They wanted to believe that their instructions were making a difference, but they were unable to tell that the sound of the rushing water was so loud that I could not hear them to follow their instructions. Perhaps they even saw the tightening of my grip following their shouting and viewed this as leaning against the tipping raft and concluded that their instructions had been received, obeyed, and caused my safe escape. Second, the other young men. Like the leaders, I believe they too were fearful for my safety and somewhat overwhelmed by the situation. They witnessed the leaders shouting instructions, again likely saw what appeared to be my obeying those instructions, but there was enough uncertainty about what I had actually done that it allowed them to accept a story of my obedience and bravery. Perhaps they may have even said to themselves, there's no way I could have done that, but Keith, he's brave, 
And so, of course, he would have followed the instructions and saved himself. Last, myself. I wanted to believe that it was my own bravery that had contributed to my escape. And while I know that my actions had something to do with the escape, because I had held on with the best grip a 15-year-old could muster, I did not do all that the leader claimed I had done. Yet I liked my leader's story better. And perhaps due to my own insecurities at the time, I was glad that his story brought me attention and respect from both the leaders and my peers. Like this experience, we face many situations as helper, observer, or participant where we can become misled or just make a mistake assessing the true causes of the outcomes in our lives. Fear, insecurity, the distractions of the world around us, and an overwhelming number of voices can combine and confuse us to keep us from drawing the right conclusions about real causes and real effects. I would like to spend my remaining time discussing some of the challenges of drawing the right spiritual inferences and discuss a tool the Lord has provided to help us avoid making these mistakes. Like the use of inference in a statistical setting, the point here is not only knowing the correct conclusion to draw, but realizing in some cases you should not draw any conclusion. Now you might ask, why would I make this the topic of my devotional? Well, you wouldn't be alone in asking that question. The same was posed by my own children when I told them of my plans. My response to them and to you is that one of the great challenges of mortality is to learn to make correct assessments and judgments in the face of uncertainty. It is an essential part of the plan. Satan does not make this easy. In a recent broadcast, President Russell M. Nelson said, quote, Pray to discern between God's laws and the philosophies of men, including those cunning counterfeits of the adversary. Through eons of time, Lucifer has honed his craft. He is skilled at distraction, distortion, deception, and misdirection. I plead with you to avoid his cunning snares as you would avoid a plague. Unquote. Another quote of this challenge comes from the following. Quote, Man is so intelligent that he feels impelled to invent theories to account for what happens in the world. Unfortunately, he is not quite intelligent enough, in most cases, to find correct explanations, so that when he acts on his theories, he behaves very often like a lunatic." Unquote. Now, lunatic is strong. But on our own, we too frequently fail to see the real cause and effect relationships. I suspect if each of us were to take a quick inventory of our recent past, we would find an occasion where we drew the wrong conclusion or the wrong spiritual inference about what caused some outcome in our lives or in the life of a loved one. As President Nelson states, the consequences of such errors can be as severe as a plague. In a similar way that the youth leaders and perhaps my peers were led to think that I was the cause of my safe escape, Satan can deceive us to focus our attention on the outcome more than the causes. For example, I could claim that my raft did not flip over and I was able to escape, and so my actions must have caused this to happen. The scriptures teach us that in the preexistence, each of us was given a choice about whose plan to follow, God's plan or Satan's plan. Satan's plan confounded cause and effect, in that his plan would save all mankind 
the desired outcome, but without the development that was central to God's plan, which would be the real cause of our eternal life. Yet this plan appealed to a third of the hosts of heaven as they were convinced that His way was the right way to achieve some form of eternal life. As we know, they were incorrect in their evaluation of the plans and face eternal consequences as a result. Perhaps a case that may even be closer to us. Do we think of serving a mission in a way similar to Satan's plan for eternal life by focusing more on the outcome, or do we focus on the efforts of the behaviors that will cause a successful mission? To focus primarily on the outcome or serving a mission, we may miss important preparation or shortchange our need for growth. We may even be inclined to ignore sins or imperfections in our lives if we believe they might keep us from the desired outcome of serving a mission. To do so would keep us from coming to know Christ and His Atonement and to qualify for the companionship of the Holy Ghost, the most important companion of a successful missionary. Another tool of Satan is his ability to convince us that certain correlations are actually causations. Now, I know we've all heard this phrase regularly, yet we fall prey to its lure. I display a somewhat silly example above a plot of two variables that appear to be quite correlated, the number of actor Nicolas Cage movies that come out yearly and the corresponding number of annual deaths by drowning in a pool. By simple visual analysis, one might conclude that an overconsumption of Nick Cage movies might actually drive movie watchers to drown themselves in their backyard pools. <laughs> now, my children have actually offered some theories as to why this relationship might be causal. But we know that this correlation should not lead us to any cause-effect conclusions. This is an overly simple example to reject causality. But we know that Satan uses much more subtle methods to deceive us into believing causal relationships that will draw us from straight and narrow onto alternative paths that oftentimes end in unhappiness. How often have we observed others struggling with faith crises and concluded the cause of their struggles are due to behaviors or information that we observe and appear to be correlated? Or perhaps in contrast, do we observe friends who seem to be living a life without trials and conclude that they must be spiritually superior because we can see their paths are clear when compared to the many obstacles we see in our own lives? The Lord exhorts us to judge not, but the allure of observable correlations can be challenging to ignore. The best response in many cases is to draw no causal conclusions based solely on correlated information. Related to his correlation tool, Satan works to confound and confuse us through unobserved or frequently described as omitted information. Let's go back to the example on the raft. The outside observers, the young men leaders and my peer scouts, did not know that the noise of the crashing water kept me from hearing their instructions, nor did they appear to see that with each trip into the falls, the raft was filling up with water. Had they observed these facts, they would have likely altered their conclusions about what caused my safe escape. In many cases, we will never be given all of the information to determine causality, and what we do not observe may be a key driver of the outcome. Just as before, 
Our best conclusion may be to draw no inference, realizing that we just don't have all of the information. However, Satan lures us into the need of trying to explain all behavior, and his offered conclusions lead us away from seeing others as God does. Satan will also work to convince us to use unobserved or omitted information to our advantage. I liked the conclusion of my young men leader when he saw me as brave and obedient. It actually took me a few hours to come clean to them that I had not, in fact, leaned against the tipping raft. One of the great attractions of social media is that we can control the information that is conveyed to the world and what information is not. We must remember as stated in 1 Samuel 16.7, that the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. There is no unobserved or omitted information to the Lord. And His love for us is not dependent on how perfect we appear on an Instagram account. But Satan will work to convince us that we can be justified to cover our sins or to hide the true causes of our outcomes if doing so will work to our worldly advantage. Satan will accomplish this by playing on our insecurities and fears. Elder Neil A. Maxwell stated, He who is thrust down in the first estate delights to have us put ourselves down. Self-contempt is of Satan. Even after I had been rescued for a period of time, I was still shaken and scared. I did not feel like I was on solid ground. When the story was told of my bravery, I almost immediately but temporarily began to feel better about myself. I liked the positive attention until I eventually admitted to myself that it was not based on the truth. Now, in their search to determine causal relationships, economists and statisticians have defined the term instrument as information that can help to rule out unimportant correlations, to control for unobserved or omitted variables, and to determine the direction of cause-and-effect relationships. I would like to borrow this term and discuss a powerful spiritual instrument the Lord has provided to help us identify causal relationships and make correct spiritual inferences. This spiritual instrument is the gift of the Holy Ghost. President James E. Faust taught us, Satan has had great success with this gullible generation. There is, however, an ample shield against the power of Lucifer and his host. This protection lies in the spirit of discernment through the gift of the Holy Ghost. This gift comes undeviatingly by personal revelation to those who strive to obey the commandments of the Lord and to follow the counsel of the living prophets." The term spiritual discernment that President Faust uses parallels very closely with the phrase spiritual inference that I have been using in my talk. As President Faust stated, the Holy Ghost helps us to see the real causes of real effects. And he also tells us how we can qualify for this gift, through our striving to obey the commandments and by following the counsel of our living prophets. Notice that President Faust does not say we have to be perfectly obedient to the commandments, only that we must strive. Also, in contrast to perhaps the world's view, we will see and understand better when we exercise faith in our leaders and obey their counsel. Recently, our Church leaders have reminded us of the roles that the Sabbath day and sacrament observance can play in maintaining our relationship with the Spirit. 
proper participation in the sacrament will more fully bring the Spirit into our lives. Elder David A. Bednar makes this connection between the sacrament and the Holy Ghost more clear. Quote, Through the ordinance of the sacrament, we renew our baptismal covenants and can receive and retain a remission of our sins. In addition, we are reminded on a weekly basis of the promise that we may always have His Spirit to be with us. As we strive to keep ourselves clean and unspotted from the world, we become worthy vessels in whom the Spirit of the Lord can always dwell. I am personally grateful for ironic priesthood holders who each week petition God in my behalf for the help that I might always remember Christ and that I might always have His Spirit to be with me. Renewing those covenants on Sunday has brought the Spirit more deeply and consistently into my life. Let me share an example in my family's life of how the Holy Ghost can help us see the truly causal relationships. A number of years ago, our family was on a trip to visit relatives, and while sitting in a small plane waiting to take off for another airport where we would catch a connecting flight, a lightning storm arose and caused a significant delay in our departure. All planes were grounded for a period of time. Marcy and my immediate response to this delay was to get on the phone, call the airlines, hotels, car rental agencies, our relatives, to discuss contingencies if we did not make the connection. During all of this chaos, our youngest daughter suggested that we pray for help. The thought hadn't crossed my mind, but it was quickly supported by her brother and sisters. And With Marcy's endorsement, we did our best to gather among the two rows of seats that we were sitting amongst and try not to draw attention offered a brief and sincere prayer for the Lord to provide a solution to our predicament. The prayer brought relief and peace, and soon thereafter the plane took off. Not long before we arrived at the connecting airport, and well after the time the connection was scheduled to leave, the pilot came over the intercom and stated that, contrary to typical practice, the connecting flight was waiting at the gate for those on our flight. We were able to make the connection. Now, my sharing of this story is not to indicate that God cares about the Vorking family vacation plans. That might be a likely uh, interpretation, but that would be the wrong inference to draw. What we learned from that experience and what the Spirit communicated to me in that simple prayer was that God was most interested in letting a young girl know and her family know that He listens to us and answers prayers. In conclusion, The bulk of my talk has been a cautionary tale against claiming causality when we do not have the ability to truly identify it. I want to end, though, with a witness of a causal relationship that we all know, that I personally know. Jesus Christ is the great cause. He has perfect knowledge of things as they really are, including each of us. Through His Spirit, He can change our minds and our hearts. He will help us to see with spiritual eyes the causal relationships that will lead to happiness and eternal life and ignore those that will draw us away from Him and His love. This I testify in His name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Progression in Life Through Decision-Making, with thoughts from Lynn A. Mickelson and Keith Vorkink. 
Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.